Sports Hub Triad. It is a Thursday drive. Thank you for being with us today. 11 years ago, Mac Brown was at Texas during the first round of realignment, or I guess I should say the last round of realignment, and he felt the Longhorns were about an hour away from leaving for the Pac-12. That's among the things he said today. After the Tar Heels' first day of preseason practice, I asked Mac about Texas and Oklahoma leaving for the SEC, and he had a lot of thoughts on it. Let's hear those, then react. First, his initial reaction to the news. I was very surprised. Uh, I had not heard it. I was in the middle of our uh, media day at, at the ACC in Charlotte, and Jeremy walked over and handed me the phone with an announcement on it right in the middle of a, an interview. And I said, great, Jeremy, thanks. That's, that's good timing. Um, but I really don't know that much about it. You know, I've, I've talked to Bubba about um, the, this global thing, uh, about the national thing, how much do we feel like this changes and what changes could be made. Uh, because that's what affects us more than anything else. Everybody, I'm not going to say is afraid, Robert, but everybody in college football seems insecure right now. I'm talking high school, senior prom type insecure when you consider this is such a seismic shift in the future uncertain, this and NIL and the one-time transfer, so much is changing in such a small period of time. Everybody's looking in the mirror. Texas and OU forced everybody to look at the mirror and ask themselves the question, where do we stand? Nobody wants to be Kansas State right now. So you have President Thrasher at FSU saying, well, we don't want to get left behind. We're considering potential options. You have Mac Brown. Going to Bubba, asking, where do we stand currently? Schools all across America are the same way as North Carolina, and I don't think as many are as well-positioned as the Tar Heels are. This was probably the most fascinating thing he had to say. He started projecting ahead and looking at where things might go, and you don't see many coaches veering into this space especially as things are as uncertain as they currently are. Mac Brown wanted to make the point, don't sweat it. Tar Heel fans, don't sweat it. Administration, don't sweat it. North Carolina is well-positioned for the future. Here's more of what Mac had to say. We, we are an AAU university, so we're one of the best academic universities in the country, and that will hold weight if people start moving around to, to different mega-conferences um, we have one of the best brands in the world. Um, our basketball is great. Our football is, is, is uh, on a surge. We have 28 sports, and just about all of them are national sports. We've got eight, 10 national championship coaches on our campus. So um, the, the way I would understand it, Josh, is if anything changed, uh, which I hope it doesn't. I love the ACC, and I love the way we've got it, and if they want to – at Notre Dame or do some, I got, I got all that stuff to, to en enhance our brand. Uh, but if something changes, North Carolina will be one of the more popular schools uh, across the, the continent that people want to have involved in their process. He's right. He's telling the truth there. I don't know why he made it across the continent. I don't know who in Mexico or in Canada are particularly interested in adding North Carolina. We're going to see a super conference, Robert, in Canada and Mexico. Now that would be some stunning realignment, wouldn't it? I'd be down for that. I don't know about like the, the Mexican colleges, but I do know that Canada, I feel like they've got some good schools up there, right? See, I don't think North Carolina has hockey. They do have soccer. Anson Dorrance, that's quite a program they've built in women's soccer. I think UNC's got a club team. That's it. For hockey. Yeah. 336-777-1600 on Twitter at WSJS Sports. His larger point is true, though. It will be an attractive school, but if we're being honest about it, it's an attractive school to the SEC. I don't know if it's really that attractive to the Big Ten. You hear all this talk the last few decades about the footprint from John Swafford. I don't think 
the Big Ten's that interested, the Pac-12, what's left of the Big 12. We're talking about the SEC. And this is what John Skipper, former ESPN president, was talking about with Dan Lebitard last week. He's a Tar Heel grad. He's from Lexington. I think he lives in Winston-Salem right now. He might be listening to my voice right now. He said, when Clemson and Florida State were rumored to be reaching out to the SEC, even though those reports weren't true from that upstate South Carolina uh, radio show host in, or, uh, earlier in the week, Skipper made the point, Florida State and Clemson would neither be as valuable as, to the SEC as a North Carolina school would be. North Carolina is the flagship school of the ninth most populous state. A state that the SEC has not tapped into. They've got a South Carolina school. They've got a Florida school. If you're looking for attractive options, who in the SEC would not be welcoming the University of North Carolina with open arms if North Carolina was interested? Now, this would never happen anytime soon, at least, because you've got that grant of rights that goes through 2035, 2036, but the clock's starting to tick on the ACC. Everybody's afraid. Everybody's insecure. Nobody trusts anybody. So you're looking at your own individual situations and wondering what's best for your school. And I think that's what Mac Brown's talking about there. More attractive than the other in-state schools. More attractive than Florida State and Clemson because of the television element. The SEC has not tapped into North Carolina. And... Of course, the ACC has to be proactive. Notre Dame's the obvious one. They probably need to come up with an arrangement like the Big 12 came up with with Texas 11 years ago. Mac was there. He got it. They recommitted to the Big 12 because Texas got preferential treatment. Texas had its own network, the Longhorn Network. The ACC needs to work something out where Notre Dame could have some level of autonomy can figure out some things with its television that other schools in the ACC might not be able to. Perhaps you dabble in uneven TV distribution. you got to find a way to make it happen because there really is no other option. John Swafford, he has rigged the game in a way. Notre Dame can't go anywhere else realistically until this grant of rights is up in 2035-2036-ish range. So the clock, it's ticking. You're now... Bob Bowlesby 10 years ago, where you have to act, you have to figure it out. It's just not as clear for Bob Bowlesby 10 years ago as it is for Jim Phillips right now, and that's Notre Dame. you got to add it. I think what Mac's saying there is, we're going to do what's best for the University of North Carolina. I hope it's in the ACC, but we're well-positioned. Conferences are going to want us. I don't know why he went all-continental, but... The SEC, we're probably, if you were going to inject the SEC with true serum and ask them realistically which school you would like to add next, they'd want to tap into the state of North Carolina. And out of the four schools in the state of North Carolina, who would they want? It's probably going to be Mac Brown's program. It's probably going to be the Tar Heels. Shifting things. We're one week away from the Wyndham Championship, and there have been a couple pretty big additions to the field Yesterday, we learned about Ricky Fowler. And today, former Masters champ Adam Scott added to the field. We learned that around 2 o'clock today. And while it's pretty hard to compare the hype surrounding any tournament to one that has Tiger Woods in it, right? Tournaments that don't have Tiger versus ones that do, like, say, the 2015 tournament at Sedgefield, this feels like the most anticipated Wyndham Championship I can remember. It's an incredible field. That's... Something we expected when the schedule shifted a few years ago. More on that in a bit. It's the best field I can remember. You do have Scott and Fowler. You do have the number eight player in the world, Louis Oosthuizen. You have other major champs like Justin Rose and Malinari. You have Jason Day is going to be a part of the tournament. Duffner. You have great major championship winning players already a part of this field. Heck, if you're just looking at recency bias, you look at what's happened with the Olympics, you have the bronze and silver medalist winners from Tokyo 
competing in this tournament too. Rory Sabatini and C.T. Pan. Xander Shoffley's the gold medal winner. He's not going to be in the field. Really no reason to be in the field, but it's the best field I can remember. This is the Triad's summer social event. We love our golf around here, and we didn't get it a year ago. Shout out to the folks that called the show and invited me to sit in their backyards and watch the tournament. I ended up taking Doug Beamer up on that uh, in Greensboro. I won't have to do that this year as much as I love hanging out with Doug. This is the Triad Summer Social Event. We didn't get it a year ago. We're going to have that. I think that's why you're seeing events that normally do not sell out have been selling out this year when we've been allowed to have full-capacity events. Love it. And I think we're going to have a great crowd that shows up at the Wyndham as you normally do, but even more so this year because of the quality of field and the fact that we didn't have the tournament a year ago. And as I mentioned with the scheduling alignment, this being the last regular season event, it's achieved the intended goal of strengthening these fields and having more motivated players playing. Next year is going to be even better. So usually it would have been, Robert, you're getting geared up for the playoffs. A three-event playoff that actually used to be a five-event playoff, so you wouldn't play in the last event, so that way you don't have to play four consecutive weeks, right? Actually, it would have been seven consecutive weeks with the five-event playoff and the way you have to ramp up to the end of the season. It was at a point where when the PGA Championship was at the end of the regular season slate rather than May, you would play in the PGA Championship, the World Golf Championship, and then the Wyndham would be right after that. So if you chose to play in the Wyndham and also wanted to compete in the playoff, which is a given, you'd be competing seven straight weeks. Golfers wouldn't want to do that. Well, now that the World Golf Championship is going to be after the playoff in Memphis and the PGA Championship has been moved to May starting next year, you're going to even have you're going to have even bigger names being a part of this tournament. So this is just a sign of what's to come. This is a really strong field. It's the best field I can remember, but it's going to get even better as we move into the future. And that is an encouraging and exciting thing. Also encouraging and exciting. Christian McCaffrey had a big day at Panthers camp at Spartanburg and afterwards he told us which rookies have music chops. You'll hear from CMC next on The Drive. I need the advice of a professional. This is The Drive with Josh Graham on WSJS Sports. Since the Hall of Fame game is tonight, Steelers-Cowboys, how about we bring in our state's Pro Football Hall of Fame voter, Darren Gant of Pro... I almost said a profootballtalk.com, panthers.com. My apologies to Darren, who's had boots on the ground. All Spartan camp, Spartanburg camp long in South Carolina. I think he's now nestled back in the Queen City getting set for... Uh, uh, you're talking about fun uh, Fan Fest tomorrow night. Do I have that right, Darren? Do I have the schedule right here? Well, you've got the schedule right. There are a couple things at play here. Number one, put one in the fine jar. I don't work there anymore. All right. I already Um, got it in here. $10. Those those are the rules. Bailey had to put one in earlier in the week, and so now you're next. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, we're actually getting ready to head out of Spartanburg, finishing up some stuff here this afternoon before we get on the road. But, uh, so all those state troopers on I-85 in South Carolina, I'm not the one in the gray Prius. So that's somebody else. Definitely you don't need to be worried about him. But, uh, yeah, we're getting ready to head back for a night or two. But been an interesting couple weeks camp so far, no doubt about that. Yeah, let's talk camp in a second. With the Hall of Fame class, uh, on Sunday, the modern-day candidates getting in, Fanica, Peyton, Charles Woodson, John Lynch, Calvin Johnson – was that did that match your top five as you voted it earlier this year? Uh, not necessarily, but I, I don't. I mean, the way I always tell people about Hall of Fame classes is they give us a list of fifteen and tell us to pick five. My challenge is don't tell me which one you want in. Tell me which ten you want out. There are guys I think 
you know, I, I don't have any problem necessarily with any of those guys being in the Hall of Fame. I would have probably done the order a little different, and, and my ballot may have reflected some different things. I think Tony Baselli's the guy out of the group that didn't get in this year that probably needs to be sooner rather than later. Uh, but uh, my view is the same as always. They're going to, if they're in that room that long, they're going to get in, so it's just a matter of when. And And not everybody loves waiting. That's obvious. Nobody wants to get held up on what they think is their destiny. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's a great class. It always is when you get to that standpoint. And uh, it'll be interesting. Plus, you got the centennial class and guys, you know, a uh, somewhat local tie, Donnie Shell, He's a South Carolina guy who played for the Steelers, obviously. He's part of the centennial class who's also going in here. So uh, I, I think it's always a fantastic group. Um and like I said, even if I would have quibbled with some of the order of those guys going in, the, the guys themselves, I have no problem with whatsoever. I think the Football Hall of Fame has become, for the last generation and maybe even the next generation, what the Baseball Hall of Fame was for the previous generation because of how difficult it is to get in. But still you see guys who naturally belong getting in, getting in. Of course, you have the problems with baseball, with steroids, and all those things that we don't need to relitigate right now. But you mentioned something there, that guys who are in the room long enough generally get in. Sam Mills has been in that room for a while, Mm -hmm. and the clock's ticking on Sam. I know you've been pushing with some of your fellow voters for him to get in. How do you feel about his odds of being a part of the Hall of Fame? We'll see. Next year's going to be his last year as a finalist, and... You know, the the numbers say it'll also be his third year. If he's part of the final 15 again next year, it'll be his third year in the in the room. Ninety percent of the guys who are in the room three times end up in the Hall of Fame. But it's interesting. I mean, it's a clock ticking situation, uh, as you mentioned. And it is his last year before he gets kicked into the pool with all the seniors candidates that covers the entire history of football. And that's hard to crawl out of. But I, I think the fact that Sam's had a, a broad base of support for a number of years here, people keep voting him into the final 15, so they must think he's worthy. Well, next year's the time. Is he or not? And and we'll find out. I mean, a lot of it depends on the rest of the class, honestly. And it's always, you know, hard, you know, until you see that ballot and know who comes through. There are no sure exactly things next year. Like, there's no, there's uh-huh. no Peyton Manning, Calvin Johnson – uh, in next year's group, where you have a sure thing, yep, this guy is going to be a first ballot guy. Nope. And and in addition to Sam, it's going to be a busy one for me. I mean, Steve Smith will be first year eligible next year. So we'll see how it goes for Steve. I, I think he is another one of those guys who, you know, probably inevitably ends up in Canton. But as I've told him and people close to him, don't, you know, don't create a game of expectations with what we've seen at wide receiver the last couple of years. There are no sure things when it comes to that position going into the Hall of Fame. How would you prioritize Steve Smith versus Torrey Holt? Oh, I think Steve's a better player than Torrey Holt. I, I, I mean, and I'm not trying to say Torrey Holt's bad by any stretch of the imagination, but Torrey played in better offenses with better help. You know, he and, you know, Torrey Holt played with a Hall of Fame quarterback. Steve Smith played with Jake DeLome and Joe Flacco. And, and, you know, he's top 10 in receiving yards. I think he's top 12 in catches all time. And, you know, he's five foot nine, third round pick out of Utah who people thought might be a nice option as a return man and turned into something far, far greater than that. I, I think Steve, you know, again, he's one of the toughest little guys I've ever seen in the game. And, and that, you know, to me, that toughness, his ability to play without, you know, Pro Bowl quarterbacks all the time and to put up the numbers he did speaks to his case. I mean, like I said, he just, you know, that toughness sets him apart to me from a lot of other guys and what he had to work with. I'll make it pretty simple. If you have in any singular year the triple crown for receiving, you're a Hall of Famer. Like, and don't talk about sample. Calvin Johnson. I mean, he didn't have the biggest sample, but if you watched Calvin Johnson, you understood it. If you watched the 2005 season of the Carolina Panthers, and specifically the game that Steve Smith had against Chicago, I don't think I've ever seen a wide receiver in a playoff game had a bigger impact than Steve yeah. Smith had in that game. No doubt. And and as I recall back to my old newspaper days and the research I did on this, I think when he won that Triple Crown in 05, he was the first guy to do it for a team that ran more than it passed. Wow. And some cat named Art Monk. 
uh, who is also <laughs> a resident of Canton, Ohio now. Darren Gant with us here. Not a pro football talk. Of Panthers.com. That does not count for the fine jar. Uh, Ten dollars right, are already in the jar long. right in front of me here. I can't speak for that Kyle Bailey fella doing things up there in Charlotte up uh, I-85. Actually, it was obvious rather than Bailey. I want oh, to make sure I, to throw the right guy under the bus. Yeah, that. that that's less surprising. Okay, who has uh, – let's look at camp this year. Look at what we've seen the last few weeks. I've been there, – there are times I, I do my show for four hours a day, but then there are times I go on other shows as guests, and usually it's about the Panthers, and I get asked, based on what you've seen at camp – what do you think about <laughs> Sam Darnold? Or based on what you see, and uh, there's nothing that can happen really at camp that makes me think better or less that much of one of these players until we see them in regular season games. Not even preseason, regular season yeah. games. So I ask you, as somebody I trust, not to overstate. I mean, even it is that's why I was kind of impressed you put out the Musa Muhammad tweet last week where you said, yeah, it's a couple of practice, but you see some hints here for Terrace Marshall Jr., have yeah. we learned anything about this team yet, Darren Gant? Um, you know what? The first week of camp, we learned they've got a lot of playmakers on defense. You know, you saw a, a brand-new secondary, basically, with J.C. Chan and Jeremy Chan back there picking off a bunch of passes and, and running around making plays. And you realized all those off-season upgrades that we talked about from March through you know, April in the draft, I mean, you see those guys out there in the flesh on the field, and it's like, yep, they got more players, all right. And it, it was pretty one-sided for that first week. But I just posted a story a little bit ago on Panthers.com there, John. Um, they talked about <laughs> the last couple of days, it's evened out a little bit. It's been a little more balanced. You've seen that offense come around. And I think when you put the pads on, it, it brings the balance a little – or brings scale a little more imbalance toward the offense, and, and you realize – oh, they've got that Christian McCaffrey guy. He's good at football. Um, and I think the combination of doing a little more inside run, being a little more physical, and seeing McCaffrey has kind of balancing things out. And it makes you realize that Darnold's at least got a chance. I mean, again, as you said, until they get into actual games, we don't know if Sam's going to revert to New York Sam, who looked shell-shocked a lot of times and threw it to the wrong team too often. But he's doing the stuff in camp that you would hope that he would have done. You know, he's showing up early. I mean, I, I get out there first thing, and Sam's, if not the first guy walking on the field, he's one of the first four or five guys out there every single day. He's punching the clock. He's being accountable. I, I think it says something. You know, I don't, I'm not saying it means he's going to be a great quarterback, but I think he's at least a good fit here. But when you see things like, They've got this corny motivational ploy. Go touch the DBO sign for don't beat ourselves when you make a mistake. Well, Sam has been taking the entire offense with him when he goes places, and, and all 11 guys are going over in situations like that. And While it's easy for quarterbacks to put themselves on an island, Sam's done a really good job of being one of 11 on, on that side of the ball. And, and when you've got D.J. Moore and Robbie Anderson and Marshall, who's looked good at times, and yeah, like I said, but oh, by the way, Christian McCaffrey, it gives him at least a chance to succeed. I'd say that. Darren, great stuff on Panthers.com and Spartanburg. I look forward to your love letter to Spartanburg sometime soon. I look forward to reading that column. I'm sure you're the perfect person to write it. <laughs> no doubt. I, I love camp in theory, but I would kind of like to get home and see my wife and uh, sleep in my own bed for a minute. You do that. We'll talk music and football sometime soon. Sounds good. See you, buddy. There he goes. It's Darren Gant. Robert's making sure I put $10 in the jar here. Got it in front of you. Got to put that in the jar. Robert, Torrey Holt versus Steve Smith's an interesting one because you know you might see some voters vote for one wide receiver but not two if you can only vote if only five guys can get in and you got to prioritize some of them. I think Smitty over Tory Holt, even though I know a lot of people in this state would probably say Tory. How do those numbers stack up career-wise, side-by-side? Uh, Steve has 1,349 more yards than Tory. He had 1,400, 731 in his career. But he also played five more seasons than Tory did. That's amazing. I thought Tory played forever. Tory played like, for 11 seasons, 10 in uh, St. Louis and one in Jacksonville. So, like, oh, yeah, the Jacksonville season. He played from, what, what 99 to 2010? I, 
11 seasons. That's what I got for you. I don't know years like that. Gotcha. So I think it's Mitty. Between those two, that's an interesting debate, and it's going to happen for next year's Hall of Fame class. Speaking of forecasting things, I'll give it my best shot. We did the NFC yesterday. Predicting the order of finishes in all of the four AFC divisions and give you 2021 AFC playoff teams. Next on The Drive. Hey, hey, what's all the commotion? You're on The Drive with Josh Graham. If you can't be at least mildly interesting, then shut the hell up. On WSJS Sports. I do want to talk about USA Basketball. They advanced to the gold medal game this morning. But that can wait because yesterday I gave NFC predictions, which included the Carolina Panthers making the playoffs. We went division by division. Today it's the AFC's turn. And another reminder, if there's a significant injury between now and the start of the season, these are subject to change. But this is how I'm feeling right now. On Thursday, August the 5th, let's start in the AFC North because Robert is a Ravens fan. I got the Ravens winning the North. I don't love the schedule. I think the placement of these games they play in prime time make things tough, but they still have too much for me to believe they're not going to win the division. Cleveland's really good. The Browns, Robert, I think there are 10, maybe an 11-win football team. I think the Ravens will have a slight advantage in a tiebreaker or probably finish one game up on Cleveland. Those are the two top teams in this division. I don't think it's a three-team race. In fact, I've been going back and forth on Steelers-Bengals third or fourth because I think they're going to finish with a similar record. But out of respect to Mike Tomlin and his level of consistency, I'm going to have the Steelers third in the north, Bengals fourth, but I do think Joe Burrow takes a pretty big jump. In the AFC South, the Indianapolis Colts, Robert, I might have initially overreacted to the Carson Wentz news earlier this week, but I still got the Colts winning this division, and here's why. Texting some folks, and they're telling me it's going to be closer to five weeks than it's going to be to 12 weeks with Carson's injury. That's what they're expecting, which means there's a chance in a crazy world he doesn't miss any games. If he does miss some games, it's going to be very few. This is a Super Bowl-level roster. If they had fear that he was going to miss a long portion of the season, a significant portion, they would trade for a quarterback. They would trade and bring somebody in, and that quarterback will probably be good enough to steer this team into first place in the South. I like the Colts first in the AFC South. The Tennessee Titans second. Coaching matters. Arthur Smith, former Tar Heel. He left as the OC in Tennessee to become the head coach in Atlanta. You don't just replace guys like that easily. Ask Atlanta after losing Kyle Shanahan following the Super Bowl season. Defensive coordinator, you let go of because you're so bad defensively, but then you promote one of the assistants into that gig. That doesn't look good. Tennessee... I'll wait and see on Bud Dupree on the defensive side. You'll lose some key guys. Titans are second, but I think this might be the worst division in the NFL this year. The Jags, they're third in the AFC South. I think this is a seven or eight win football team. I really do. It's going to be a big leap with Urban Meyer and Trevor Lawrence and a team that's actually trying to win. They have good linemen, which you might be surprised by. Andrew Norwell still there. You've got Two good running backs. You've got three good wide receivers. And Trevor is a generational talent. The question is, can some of these guys hold their own defensively? That'll remain to be seen, but I think the Jags take a pretty big jump this year. The Houston Texans dead last in the division. It's all bad for David Cully and company. In the AFC East, this might be the biggest stunner that I got for you, Robert. I got the Patriots winning the East. I think... All those opt-outs that New England had a year ago, many of those players are going to be back now. And you got Cam Newton. When he was healthy, he was actually pretty darn good for New England. We saw that in stretches. They equipped him with talent. 
You got Jonu Smith. You brought in Nelson Aguilar. You brought in... Who's the other tight end that I'm forgetting about that the Patriots brought in other than Hunter Henry? Oh, that's it. I said uh, Jonu Smith. It's Hunter Henry. He's the other one that New England got. I I think his Patriot team is going to edge out Buffalo. Buffalo's going to make the playoffs. They're going to be just fine. Made the championship game for a reason. But... I want to see it for more than one year from Josh Allen before I just say that this guy's one of the top quarterbacks in the entire sport. So Patriots first, Bills second, Dolphins third. Really difficult slate in the first half of the season for Tua and company. That's going to be really tough sledding. And if they're already behind the eight ball, does Tua possess the leadership qualities to lead this team back into a winning season? This looks like a 500 football team to me. And then there's the Jets. They're building things right. I like the direction they're headed in. The draft picks they made, the leadership tandem of Robert Sala and uh, Joe Douglas. I I like what the Jets are doing. It's just too soon to say you're going to get out of the cellar of the AFC East. And then in the AFC West, the Chiefs win the West. I don't think I need to go any further in talking about that. The Chargers are second. You got weapons. The big question with them defensively, hey, can some of these corners stay healthy? Chris Harris didn't play in a lot of games last year. You you drafted a corner you feel good about in Asante Samuel Jr. I, I like the Chargers. I do, but that's the question. You don't want to be short at corner in that division with Pat Mahomes and Derek Carr. The Raiders are third in the division, the Broncos fourth, which is going to lead to Fick Fangio getting fired. That's what I have in the AFC in terms of where teams are going to finish in their divisions. Here's what the playoff picture looks like. The team with the bye, Kansas City. Kansas City's going to be on a revenge tour since they didn't win the Super Bowl last year. They'll have the top seed. The Baltimore Ravens, considering how tough that division is, you have to have a pretty damn good record to win that division. I think the second best in the AFC. The Patriots will have a better record than the Colts. I think the AFC South is the worst division. The Colts are going to be dealing with a lot of injuries, it sounds like. Quentin Nelson and Carson Wentz right out of the gate. I think New England, the AFC East champ, is going to be stronger record-wise heading into the playoffs than the AFC South champ. The Colts, fourth, getting a home game in the first round. And then your three wildcard teams in this order, the Buffalo Bills, the Cleveland Browns, And getting that last spot over the Titans, the Raiders, the Steelers and company, the L.A. Chargers. The L.A. Chargers get the last playoff spot. That's how I see the AFC. Robert, do you have any significant issues with my predictions here? This is probably kind of blasphemous, but I I really don't think the Ravens are going to win the AFC North. Really? I, I think with the additions the Browns made in the offseason with the Anthony Walkers, the John jo- the John Johnsons, they had a fantastic draft. I just really like the Browns. So you like you like the Browns more than the than the Ravens? I, I think they have a better chance. I know they have a better schedule. Uh, they definitely don't have a bye week in between them playing uh, before them playing uh, division opponent like the Ravens yeah. do. Uh, I, think I think Cleveland this is still come... has a ton of primetime games, but to your point, yeah, they're they're positioned a little bit better. And I, they have a lot. The Clowney addition, they didn't really lose a lot on offense. Uh, if Baker takes the next step, I think it's the Browns to lose. Yeah, uh, that that is a really difficult division to figure out. The the North that probably was the most difficult one to figure out out of the four. If I'm being honest. I'm so, I thought you would take issue with the Bills or the Patriots finishing first over the Bills. Sometimes I just got to let you fly. And if you yeah. fly into a wall, it happens. Come on, Peacock. I'm a, come on, Captain. I'm a Peacock. You got to let me fly. Let's get to USA Basketball. So, Team USA won this morning against Australia. Won it by... About 20 points. And now they're in the gold medal game. The gold medal game, which we'll talk about in a bit, this would be Team USA's most impressive gold medal. Like, we've seen 
unbelievable performances by unbelievable teams that are overwhelming. But I don't think we've seen it before since the pros have been allowed to play. We did not think this team was going to win gold, and they did anyway. Right? I never counted them out for winning gold. I criticized Greg Popovich being the coach because he's an NBA coach and there hasn't been a good track record there. But even when things were at their lowest, I never said this team would not have a shot to medal or win a gold. But they were written off. They were written off by many. The NBA season ended late, so Middleton, Booker, and Holiday didn't arrive until literally the day before or a couple days before their first game. I think that's why I would prefer a college coach because they finish up in March while these NBA coaches are just finishing up, you know, right before the Olympic Games are set to happen. I think it's also a reason why you saw a lot of opt-outs, more opt-outs than we've seen before. It's on par with 2016, but a ton of opt-outs, and of course that's been a part of the story. So a lot of people wrote them off when they lost twice in the exhibition round. They lost their opener to France, but here they are, in position. The rest of the world closed the gap. I think that leads to how impressive this is. You look at just the NBA right now, the MVPs from Serbia, the Defensive Player of the Year's from France, the Finals MVPs from Greece, and maybe the best player in the world from Slovenia. The rest of the world's catching up. And the USA was tested today. They were down 15 points with five and a half left to go in the first half and closed the half on a 16-4 run. A lot of that had to do with some shots from Devin Booker. KD had some shots that were big too. And then KD went nuts in the third, scored eight straight points. And then you look up at the end of the third quarter, the Americans are up by 20. It was just an unbelievable display. They were not awesome today, the team. But then when they were on, it was just overwhelming. And Australia, according to the FIBA rankings, was the number three ranked team in the world going into the Olympics. So this was an impressive win, an impressive run. This would be the most impressive gold medal performance by the Americans, I think, especially if they win against France. France beat Slovenia today. France has already beaten the United States in this tournament, won a thriller. And Robert, I don't know if you saw how this game ended, but... Luca was set to face a double team from Nick Batum coming over. So it was Gobert, and and then you had Nick Batum on a closeout. This is with less than five seconds to go. So Luca passed up what would have been the last shot and the potential game-winning shot for somebody else to drive in for a layup. But Nick Batum was able to get back. He helped over, and he blocked the shot pretty much at the buzzer to win it. It wasn't Donkic taking the final shot, which is stunning. And if it was a block to win it, it wasn't Rudy Gobert. It was Nick Batum sending France to the gold medal game. So there you have it. USA facing France with a gold medal hanging in the balance. Going to be exciting to follow later this week. The Drive with Josh Graham on WSJS Sports. Robert, are you telling me the Charlotte Hornets have actually done something or are perhaps in position to do something? They might act here. I want to talk to Brian Geisiger about this. We'll out-precise the Geis, or I'll try to out-precise the Geis in about an hour, but... What are the rumors out there right now? See, the Hornets, they've been pretty inactive. Haven't really done anything aside from sign former Deke Ish Smith and trade for Mason Plumley, a trade I don't think has even been made official yet. So you don't have JT Thor, who was the player the Pistons took for the Hornets in that trade in the draft. He's not going to be on the Summer League roster. A spot opened up for Joel Berry. He's going to be on the Summer League team. 
that's all that's happened with the Hornets. But you've had free agency the last few days, and I've just been expected. The Hornets have some cap space. How about they use it? They haven't. What's the rumor mill right now? Uh, Shams tweeted about 26 minutes ago, the Hornets have emerged with strong interest in a potential offer sheet for Chicago restricted free agent Lori Markkinen. Uh, sources tell The Athletic. RFAs can begin signing uh, the sheets on Friday. It makes sense. We've been hearing the Hornets linked to Markkinen for a while now. Got to think there's something there in Chicago. I don't think has any money left. I don't know if they can match whatever the Hornets try to give them. So, Lori Markkinen might be the fit. We'll ask BG about it later. Right now, we warrant or elicit your questions. 336-777-1600, the phone number. Ask us whatever's on your mind right now. It might be sports-related. It might not be. It's unusual questions. Last week, guys, everybody made it out that I got mad at Josh and I left the press conference. That's not right. I thought it was an unusual question, and it's okay. It's time for Unusual Questions with Josh Graham. I've got a couple here, Robert. You want to get us started? Yeah. uh, Why can't marriages be like sports contracts? Like, I would really love to give my girlfriend, like, a prove-it deal. Like, I'll give you a one-year deal where we're married. We get the tax cuts. And then, like, after the year's up, like, maybe we could work something out. Get your agent to call my agent. We could figure out what my cap space is looking like. Like, she hit a lot of escalators for her pay hike. Uh, Late in the season, we were happy with that. We're glad she hit that. But I just don't know how much money... Uh, this organization has to spread itself that thin. But then if, if by chance a superstar comes along, then yeah, I'm going to give her a 10-year deal right off the bat. When you have the opportunity to add a player like that to your roster, you just do it. And I, I, would, I think there would be a lot more, it would be a lot more progressive for us to have outs to have um, like a five-year out like a, a player out. option like maybe the girl's not so happy maybe she would like to get out early right. and as part of this contract though you cannot date anybody else until the terms are up so then the media can start talking about yeah josh and sarah bradford they haven't they haven't upped the they haven't officially opted in on the next five years. So are they going to be on the market? Well, it, it depends like, on the trade deadline. Hot, it depends this what be happens. Should a hot boy summer? It depends like, what happens at the trade deadline. It depends what happens in uh, what other people are looking like for draft picks. Like, as me, I, I highly value those draft picks, the opportunity to go back to the well and try to find another superstar. Shine, if you're listening to this, you're not getting a one-year <laughs> Sarah deal. Sarah Bradford just texted me an emoji. Robert, how would you describe this emoji here let me let me put it so you can see it you're on the other side of the glass yeah, that's pretty so far away let, let me put it in front of you real quick what would you describe this emoji as uh shocked uh f- frightened um <laughs> sarah bradford gets the john calipari lifetime deal that's that's what it is her agent's really good Strong agent got her a really good deal. Or maybe my agent gave me the best possible deal. (laughs) If we're being honest, maybe we should move off of this topic. Actually, I have another wedding one. See, a lot of these are just reflections on what we're going through in life. And in my case, getting ready for a wedding... That was not a reflection of my life, by the way. Just so everybody's clear and anyone talks to my girlfriend. Just so it's clear to Cheyenne right now. How Robert, where Robert's at. What is the point of a first look? Are you aware of what a first look is, Robert? Like I was, I was given this book, and you're flipping through it to see all these different photo opportunities, what's available to you as a couple on, on um, wedding day. Do you know what a first look is? Is that like the first time the groom or the bride see each other in their whole wedding getup? Right. You can do that before. The actual ceremony. Couples do this, where you can meet up with each other for extra photos, be there, you get to see each other in a more private, intimate setting, rather than the first time you see, uh, like in my instance, see Sarah Bradford in her dress for the first time is during the ceremony. And I don't really get the point of it. I don't think we're going to do that. Uh, I think me and Sarah Bradford, we've talked about this. So I just don't understand this. It's... The wedding especially, 
There are so many opportunities for photos, Robert. Like, think about how many photos you're going to have taken at a wedding of you in your suit, you, uh, her in her dress. Do we need more photos? Do we need more photo opportunities on wedding day? Or is the ceremony and the reception enough? And this is coming from somebody who hates taking pictures. I... At an event like that, I you think... You really do hate taking pictures. I, I don't like taking pictures. I don't know why. I'm, it's just not my bag. I don't want to be standing there to smile for a picture. Just take a candid if you really want a picture of me. But uh, I think you should because the the wedding happens so fast. And, like, how many photographers are you going to have? Or, like, in any instance, like, you going to have three photographers at your wedding? No, it's probably one dude trying to work the angles, trying to get the stuff. And if you stage stuff like that, then you have stuff to fall back on. Like, maybe you want that first look. If the first look, he couldn't get a picture. People, everyone stood up and it was in his way or something. You know what I mean? Or he couldn't get the right angle. So, like, maybe you do need those pictures as backups just in case so you can fill out your album and have a nice reaction shot or whatever. But, again, I when I get married, I'm that's all on them. I'm making none of those decisions. That's all up to whoever I marry. Sarah Bradford just texted me, you're on a one-year contract. Uh, with, with questions like that, you definitely are. Have you practiced that dance at all? <laughs> Robert, what's the next unusual question? Uh, how do I get my cat modeling opportunities? Because when I look at <laughs> when I look at like the the pet aisle and the food aisle, like these cats aren't special. Like look at the next time you if you're in the grocery store, go to the cat food aisle, go to the dog food aisle. Those dogs just look like dogs. They just look like cats. And, like, my cat's a good-looking cat, but he don't look no different than anybody else. So, like, what would I have to do? I'm just ready for him to pull his own weight. What would I have to do to get my cat some modeling opportunities? Would I have to take some glamour shots and send them off to, like, Purina or whoever the cat food is, Pure? Like, do I just need to send them off and be like, hey, cat's interested. He will roll over for treats. He will come to you. I think it's about who you know more than anything else because most of these cats Robert I'm gonna I hate to break it to you are some person's cat oh I get that I understand that I'd love to read a story about like the tax bracket the wealth obtained from being in the cat you know uh, the owners of the cats that are in these advertisements I'm trying to be a stage mom I'm trying to be one of those cat owners that's there. I'm like, no, no, he is not taking pictures with uh, without his hat on. He's not taking. Look, he hasn't had his milk break for the day. Uh, Winston needs a break. I would love to be a cat stage mom. Three three six seven 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 one six hundred. My parents have this cat named Rocky. I just sent you a picture of this cat. And what's special about this cat? It showed up at my parents' house on a rainy night. Somebody just dropped off this cat as a kitten. We didn't know if it was going to make it, and Rocky did make it, but one of the front paws uh, does not work, and the doctor suggested, the vet suggested that we do not amputate the foot. It's not something that's going to hurt the cat. It's in a good spot. Like, it's 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 not worth amputating, so the the arm is forever placed in the chest of this cat. Like, you see the picture that I showed you, Robert. It looks like... Picture an 1800s president portrait where they all have their arms in there in the jacket. That's what this cat looks like, which is why I've changed this cat's name from Rocky to Rockaford because that sounds like an 1800s president name. I think if you would get him amputated, he'd get a lot more looks at modeling stuff. I think that whole... Yeah, the whole like... uh, like handy capable movement, I think your cat would get a good spin, uh, spin on that. And that's been unusual questions for today. That was a very unusual session of unusual questions. Uh, getting the immediate feedback of talking about things, Robert asking questions like, why don't we have. Marriage contracts look like sports contracts. I think we got the answer to that question in the middle of this segment. (laughs) Uh, Should we normalize that? It probably is better off for the guy 
than the girl that the contracts do not look like sports contracts. Heck no. I don't know. A bunch of my friends got married and then just blew up. And I don't mean like got more money. I mean like their waist size blew up. I feel like girls end up looking a lot better as marriages progress than guys do. That's a good point. Not something I considered there. I asked uh, Mac Brown about Texas's departure for the SEC, and he gave me a big-picture answer to that question that you're going to want to hear. That sound and our reaction next to the drive. A regular little chatterbox. Already talking a mile a minute. You're on the drive with Josh Graham on WSJS Sports. No, you're diving deep into Lori Markinen's stats. I'm reading all these reports from the last hour or so since Shams dropped at the Hornets are considering an offer sheet for Lori Markinen. This shouldn't really surprise anybody. Right before the moratorium period began, we saw some of the rumors thrown out there that the Hornets were in discussion with the Chicago Bulls and New Orleans Pelicans trying to facilitate a three-team trade that would send Devontae Graham to Chicago or make it to New Orleans, Lonzo Ball to Chicago, and Lori Markkinen to Charlotte. And that deal never happened, but Lonzo Ball did end up in Chicago and Devontae Graham did end up in New Orleans. So it felt like there was something to that report. I'm just interested if it makes a lot of sense. Is this somebody you can play as a small ball center uh, if you need to? And Brian Geisiger is the person that we rely on that rely on with things like that. He's on vacation. We're trying to set something up with him right now. I think he went out where I was at a few weeks ago in Colorado. Let's uh, go to Brian Geisiger. So BG, Lori Market into the Hornets. Does it make sense to you? Well, it's not it's not quite official yet, right? Yes. I mean, you know, we'll 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 see how in fact this does track. Um, they've emerged as having strong interest in a potential offer sheet. I mean, signs point to them doing that. I will be curious to see what the terms of that look like, right? Um, in terms of years, in terms of average annual value. Uh, people probably remember marketing from not too long ago. He was a lottery pick, Arizona. Um, had one of the greatest three-point shooting seasons in college basketball history for a seven-footer, and I think has shown flashes in the NBA as being a big-time catch-and-shoot player, right? A, a guy that can really, a, a, with his size, can float around the perimeter and can bomb threes. Um, I don't think he's shown all that much offensively, maybe a little bit of self-creation here and there, but he really is just a play finisher, and he's a bad defender that doesn't really have much of a position. I am all for taking um, taking tan chances on what's called second drafting these players. You know, you're finding a young prospect in distress, and you you snatch him up on a cheap contract, and you could see you see if you can get some value out of that and get them in place to the potential they had, may have had entering the draft or something else. And with what it's going to cost them to get Markin in. I, you know, I'll be curious to see what that number looks like. It's just not how I would have gone about using the cap space. I think there are more creative ways to use this cap space. I think there are ways to find players that are more better suited and needed more heavily on this roster than another sort of like hybrid forward that can float around and shoot threes like they have P.J. Washington already. Um, that, that's so the piece I, right there. You just brought it up right there. If you bring in Lori Markkinen, does that uh, pretty much all but tell you that a trade's going to happen and PJ's going to be at the center of it? It could. I mean, yeah, I mean, they, this, they could be lining themselves up to swing a trade for, you know, a Miles Turner type or whatever. But, like, I would just say this, in my opinion, that's really poor player evaluation on their part because PJ's really good. Um, he's 22, 23 years old. He's got two years left on his rookie contract. Um, he's a much better player, uh, two-way player, than Laurie Markkinen. Um so I wouldn't like that at all. So now, what I will me, say, so give me an option that, that you do like, um, because you said 
hey, there, there are better options for Charlotte. And, you know, I've been kind of surprised that they've been really slow to act and make some moves since they have some cap space or at least a good amount of cap space when you put it side by side with the teams right now that have the most space, which isn't a lot of teams. Uh, who do you like that's still available right now that Cupcheck could go after that makes sense to you? I mean, not really many people. I, I'd sort of rather them just go into the season uh, with cap space or, or carry the cap space later into the summer. I mean, right now the way they're set up, they've got about $13 million in, in cap space, $13 million and a half. They could clear up to closer to $16, million, $16.5 if they got rid of, if they, uh, if they cut, you know, um, Jalen McDaniels or Cody Martin or Caleb Martin. Those are three non-guaranteed salaries for next season. So you could do that, and I would rather them, what I would prefer them to do would be to use that cap space and be a dumping ground where teams who have bad contracts can say, hey, we're going to attach a first-round pick to this player. You absorb him into your cap space, right? And then for the cost of that, doing that business, you get a pick or you get another young, good player, as opposed to maybe taking a second chance on marketing. Like, I'm not completely off of it. Again, I'd like to see the terms of the contract, but I would feel pretty queasy about this if it's you know anything north, if they are actually having a clear space to get up to that sixteen million dollar line for marketing, which I don't think they will be, and also if this is like the prelude to some trade with PJ Washington, like I just can't believe people are undervaluing PJ so much. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that's definitely what's happening here with Charlotte, but like he's really good, and um, I would just not be very, I would not be willy nilly about wanting to just like include him in a trade. As a, to grease the wheels to get another player when he's already good on a team-controlled contract. So, um, I don't know. I, I'm not marketing. It's just not the kind. They need defense uh, as well. There are some cheap guys you could go go find for that, like Isaac Banga, but I know no one no one's really listening to the show cares about that. So, um, I just, I don't know. This is not exactly the most creative use of the cap space, um, even if it is just sort of like step one of a multi-step process that's going to like include a a trade for a, a starting level center or something like that. It's just, it's just not the route I, I would have, I would have gone um, personally. Brian Geisinger is on Twitter at bgeis underscore bird bg from the from accsports.com with us on WSJS Sports. Given what we've seen in free agency thus far, after Milwaukee and uh, of course the Brooklyn Nets, who do you think? You like the roster the most in the East uh, in the Eastern Conference. When you get past those two top teams, who stands out to you most? Yeah, yeah, I think you you you, you highlighted two of the good ones, and I think Brooklyn has continued to just have a nice. Does, Sean Marks has done a nice job building out this Brooklyn roster around uh, their big three stars, and the Nets will come into next season as the you know the overwhelming favorites to win the title. I mean, I like it's certainly expensive. Um, I like what Miami did in terms of you know getting Kyle Lowry. We'll see how much juice he has left in the tank. I mean, it's the, Pat Riley just put a put a bunch of money in the middle of the table for uh, Kyle Lowry. The the, ex, the extension that Jimmy Butler is going to sign for 184 million dollars. Duncan Robinson on a 90 million dollar five year contract. But you also bring in Marquise Morris. You bring in Dead uh, Dwayne Dedman. You bring in PJ Tucker, like another three and D hybrid forward type. So I kind of like what Miami is doing. I don't think they're in the same tier as, say, someone like, um, you know, like Brooklyn. But I think they're in that next group below them. And so I do like what the Heat have done. I really think the trio of Bam Adebayo, Jimmy Butler, and Kyle Lowry, along with a just star shooter in Duncan Robinson and some good 3 and D types, that's a pretty darn good recipe for a team that has, like, you know, a better than decent chance of winning the Eastern Conference. They're all very tough. They're tough. Those guys you described, maybe Sands, Duncan Robinson, are tough as nails. It almost seems like the strategy from Pat Riley is, hey, if we can't beat you in overall talent, Brooklyn, well, we're going to try and beat you up. We're going to try and grind you out because we know you guys have had difficulty holding up over a seven-game series. That might be the play to go with guys like P.J. Tucker and, of course, having Bam and Jimmy Butler and even to a degree Kyle Lowry. Yeah, I agree. Because I don't think as much as I like this Miami team, and I like the creativity and collective sort of like basketball IQ of, of their of their top guys, they don't have the same scoring punch as Brooklyn. So like if they're gonna win a series in you know the Eastern Conference Finals or whatever against Brooklyn, they're gonna bring that game into the mud, you know, and have Brooklyn play at that style. Which like with the group of guys, it's not easy to do that against Durant and Harden and Irving. 
But with some of the guys Miami's brought in, it's given themselves a chance to at least conceivably say that they could play that style. It's interesting. Uh, one more thing, really quickly, before we get to outprecise the guys. I am pro what the Lakers have done leading up to getting really old with how they rounded out their roster. Maybe the oldest team in NBA history we're about to see. I like the addition of Russell Westbrook if it means you can maybe spell LeBron James and not have him play 35, 36 minutes a game and not see much drop-off and playmaking on the floor. But uh, the Lakers, do you feel better about them or worse because of what they've done this offseason? I feel I need to well I just need to see what LeBron and AD look like with with some rest uh, for next season. Um, I feel slightly worse, even though I do think they they probably project as like the favorite to win the Western Conference Finals. Like I like the addition of Westbrook in terms of like getting another guy that can handle the ball, put pressure on the rim next to LeBron. Like they obviously needed that uh, next to they needed another playmaker next to LeBron. But at no time last season watching this team with Dennis Schroeder did I think like. Oh wow, they they could they they could use like less shooting on the court and more rim pressure, you know? Like they kind of I know Westbrook is an upgrade over Schroeder, don't get me wrong, he definitely is. But like I just they already had a guy on the roster that could get sort of north south and instead they've now flipped their two best three and D guys in, in Kyle Kuzma and in Cadavius Caldwell Pope to get another in a draft pick to, to get a guy that, that is not gonna give them any shooting, any spacing. Um, but will sort of check some of the boxes next to LeBron uh, in terms of giving them another ball handler. Um, I like what they did on the night of the draft, also signing Joel Aia out of Gonzaga and Austin Reeves out of Oklahoma. I thought those yeah. were two good undrafted free agents. Um, the Westbrook deal, not in love with it, but um, may- maybe he is just what they need in terms of one more creator. Ayai uh, was a lot of fun at Gonzaga last year. If he can shoot any level in the NBA, there's going to be space for that on this Lakers team. Robert Walsh, let's let's line them up. I'm going to try and out-precise the guys. Brian Geisinger is a basketball genius. Josh Graham uh, is not. I'm smart, you're dumb. I'm big, you're little. I'm right, you're wrong. Listen as Brian launches half-court shots and Josh, well, double dribbles all over himself. And there's nothing you can do about it. Get off the bench and try to out-precise the guys. All right, Dang. a ton has happened between last Monday and this Monday. Literally, the entire league has been shook up. Uh, I've got some questions for you guys, not just about free agency, but about the draft and where we're going to start at with the Olympics. I hope you guys have been watching. Uh, you remember when the U.S. took on the Czech Republic? Uh, it was the first game that you saw the players from the finals added to the Olympic roster. So Devin Booker, Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton... Uh, in the first game back for those guys, how many points did they combine for? Ooh, <laughs> Robert, put one. these questions together on Monday. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I love it. We're staying current here. Um, uh, well, Drew Holiday. Say... So what was the question again? The oh, three sorry. players from the finals, Drew, oh. Hol- or Drew Holiday, Devin Booker, and Chris Middleton, how many points did they combine for on their first game against the Czech Republic with the U.S.? Got it down. Okay. Uh, by the way, Drew Holiday has played uh, very well in the, in the Olympics. Uh, yes. He's been better than, than Dame Lillard. Um, I will say, I'll say twenty-six combined points between those three guys. I've got twenty-nine written down. Uh, Devin Booker had five. Drew Holiday had eleven. Chris Middleton had eight. That oh takes God. us to twenty-four. Oh, uh, yes. And Geis takes the first point here. Wow! All right, let's go. Off let's by go. two. He's off his game. Yeah, <laughs> uh, a guy who was not off his game all last season, Cade Cunningham. He was the number one overall prospect in Detroit uh, at Hokel- at Oklahoma State. He was forty percent from three. If he shot forty percent last year in the NBA, where would he rank? So would he be the seventeenth? Would he be the fifty second? Would he be the thirty fourth? Where would he rank in three point percentage in the NBA last year with forty mm, percent? Forty percent is pretty good. Kate Cunningham, man, he's he's a hell of a shooter too. Um, he's gonna be an awesome pro. Um, I will say, I'll say thirtieth uh, in the NBA. How about that? I've got twenty-seven written down. He would be tied with Vucevic and Miles Bridges for 49th in oh, the league. All right, let's go, let's go, Gosh. let's go. Man, close, I was thinking it would be high. It. I be th- I was thinking it would be high, but Geisinger threw me off when he his first reaction was, "Wow, that's really good." Uh, I was thinking yeah. like Malik Monk shot forty percent from three last year. 
Yeah. Well, these are NBA players versus a college guy that had to take a bunch of pull-up threes, you know? So, um, so it's, it's not quite apples to oranges, but yeah, if Kate Cunningham shoots 40% in the NBA, uh, he's going to be just fine as a pro, that's for sure. Uh, coming into our last question, this one's just for funsies. I love free agency. NBA, NFL, it doesn't matter to me. And it seems like the first wave was the biggest wave, and it's come and gone. Uh, but I love the RFA concept, whether it's the NFL or the NBA. You can have a player if you want to offer them more than the team that currently has him. And the most interesting RFA before he signed his long-term deal for me, a guy that uh, Geis has already highlighted, was Duncan Robinson. The guy's an 86% uh, free throw shooter, 42 from three, and I thought that's a guy that a lot of teams would be lining up to offer an RFA contract. But the Heat were smart. They weren't going to play the same game. They played with, uh, I think it was Tyler Johnson uh, in 2016. The Nets offered him a fat contract, and they had to pay up for him. Or I I don't know if he went to the Nets or not. I think he went to the Nets. Uh, But they were smart. They upped the ante because, like I said, a 42% three-point shooter. So how many exactly, how many threes has Duncan Robinson made in his whole career? How many years? Uh, I think he, I don't have the years. I think it's three. He didn't play a lot his first year, but of the games he's been eligible to play in, he has started 141 of 160 games. Yeah, Michigan kid, right? So 19 games he hasn't started uh, in the NBA that he's been able to play. Okay, so we're talking about two this guy, like six years ago, was playing Division Three basketball. Um, he just signed. He just signed a ninety million dollar contract to play with a, a team that could win the Eastern Conference Finals. The richest undrafted um, contract in NBA history. Yeah, it's uh, pretty impressive. But I mean, he basically they use him like Clay Thompson. Like he turned into one hell of a player. Uh, career threes. Oh man, he's taking a, takes a ton of them. Makes a lot of them. I'll say. Um, I'll say six twenty five. I've got 417 written down for Duncan Robinson. Duncan Robinson made 533s. Uh, I'm having to do math here, so both of you give me your answers again. 417. What did Geisinger say? 625. So I was 95 off here. I think I just said Josh out. Josh, you said 417. Correct. Thirty. Uh, Josh is 113 off. Oh. So Geis yeah. edges him out just barely. Oh. Clean sweep today. Yeah, I, I was so close <laughs> on all three, but Geisinger was just a little bit better. It is crazy to a think he got the richest, you know, undrafted contract. We're seeing a lot of guys, man, like late in the draft yeah. have success, more success than we've seen in the past. Jokic, of course, winning the MVP as a true yeah, second yeah. rounder. Giannis, of course. What he's done is kind of incredible. Was he taken in the lottery? Back into the lottery around that point. Yeah, pick 13. Pick 13, pick 13 in 2013. So he was in the lottery uh, before growing like extra intri- extra inches and just becoming <laughs> a, a pterodactyl that plays basketball. And then Duncan Robinson, of course. Uh, a great undrafted yeah. pickup. BG, uh, you were in Colorado. I was in Colorado recently. You having fun out there, buddy? Well, I'm back in North Carolina now. Okay, but, you're back. Uh, yep, at, had a good time. Um, and, uh, you know, traveling's a little a little hectic right now, uh, just given the state of the world. But um, it was it was a lot of fun and uh, some beautiful hikes out there and got to, got to take in some nice weather. So I feel pretty fortunate, yeah. We'll catch up with you next Monday. Thanks for doing this, buddy. Yep, sounds good. That's Brian Geisinger, and that's been Out Precise the Geis.